Welcome back to Screenfish Radio. It is 2024, and I am so thrilled uh, to be here with you. The holidays are over, but I'm not just excited for that. I'm excited because this is one of my favorite episodes of the year. It truly is. Not just because of what we're talking about, but because I love having Kevin McLenathan on as well. Welcome back, Kevin. It's great to have you here. It's really good to be back on Screenfish, Steve. Thanks for having me back. You know, I, I guess the fact that you keep asking me back to do this episode means that something's going right. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. The people demand it. I mean, the right. people demand it. Um, no, I'm thrilled. Honestly, Kevin, I, I, I really look forward to this episode because it's so unique. This week, we are going to talk about one of the uh, more underwritten uh, surprises of the year in some ways, uh, the zone of interest. But before we do that, it's time for us to get into a bit of an annual tradition. And uh, Kevin, I'd like to, if we can, talk a little bit about our favorite movie moments. Let's, the, this is one of the things I love about this particular episode because everybody does top 10 lists. Everybody do, does their best films of the year, but, but that doesn't always mean uh, that those are the only moments that matter or that land. You know, sometimes there are films that are not that great uh, that, that, have important moments and sometimes it is from those those biggest oscar films that are coming out of the year but uh i, I would love to talk before we talk about our top three do you, do you have any honorable mentions you'd like to throw in yeah uh i mean so cards on the table i think 2023 was a fabulous movie year and I'm not just saying that, uh, like for instance, 2022, I actually was a little bit disappointed in, so I don't just throw out the great year for movies compliment willy nilly, but I think that's definitely true for 2023. And that means that I could probably have like 10 honorable mentions here, but, um, <laughs> I, I guess there, there are a couple that I'd want to mention. One of them is, uh, kind of the, the ending of Oppenheimer, um, where without you know giving away everything that happens in the ending there is a kind of it closes with a kind of ominous almost dire apocalyptic vision where oppenheimer sort of comes to terms with the pandora's box that he's opened and um the note that nolan ends the movie on is profoundly disquieting i think as it should be for a movie about the the father of the atomic bomb and uh i just remember walking out of the film uh having seen that ending just feeling kind of haunted by it and i think that's exactly right and fitting um and it also uh just makes for a fitting capstone to a very ambitious film as well and i just I, I loved that moment. Um, it's a strong ending to a strong film. I also really liked um, a a sequence from Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, where uh, which is just it, it's hard to even explain exactly what the context for the scene is, just because it's a Wes Anderson movie, so it's like a nesting doll of you know narratives within narratives and characters playing other characters. Um, but the short version is, uh, there is a play within a play, uh, or a play within the movie or maybe, no, I'm getting mixed up myself. It's a <laughs> play within a 
radio drama within the movie. Um, so it's got that nesting doll structure. But in this play within the uh, the movie, uh, one actor kind of opens up to a director character and says that he doesn't quite understand the play that he's in. He doesn't understand what makes his character tick. He's not sure why he's even doing this play. And the director just kind of tells him, that's okay. You just have to keep muddling through and just keep playing the part and it will become clear in time. Hmm. And again, maybe it doesn't out of context, maybe it doesn't sound like all that much, but in the context of the film, it just felt like such a balm to anyone who's ever felt unsure about their life's direction or about the direction of just kind of the world in general and not being sure, you know, what it's all for. Why are we here? Why, you know, why are, why is the world the way it is? And the answer kind of, I don't know, seems like an echo maybe of, what God might tell us is that you don't necessarily have to understand it, but you do have to be faithful and play your part. And I don't know, there's something about that that just felt so profoundly healing, especially in a year like 2023. So that was one of my honorable mentions. So we're going up from there. So those that, that maybe gives you such a good idea of what a strong year I think it was that those two heavy hitters are just in my honorable mentions. <laughs> well, those are those are great moments. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because one of my honorable mentions is also from Oppenheimer. And but my the scene that I was looking at, honestly, is the bomb itself. The not the the scene where they actually test the bomb. I found astounding because of how they could have done it. And then as opposed to how they did do it, because what they could have done in all seriousness is made it look really cool. They could have taken the easy route, showing you the, the bomb and the devastation and had everyone go, whoa, you know, something really simple. But this is actually a very quiet and sad scene uh, as it plays out. It really is remarkable. And, and the way that he uses his practical effects and the different ways that he does to create the imagery there, this really settles into the devastation and how the world has changed as opposed to any mind-blowing, cool effect. Like, this is the same director, of course, as we know, who felt like crashing a plane in Tenet, and he did. And he did, he, he actually in the way he he uses his cinematography in this particular moment is astounding to me because he how how i would have expected him to do it uh it was so much more complex i thought very much so and the other thing i would say and i don't i uh, we're going to talk about this film but zone of the zone of interest and i feel a little dirty saying this to you kevin that that in my honorable mentions is a scene about vomit um but it's (laughs) It, it really is, um, for those of you who have seen the film, it really is a remarkable moment and sort of the climax of the film, uh, which we will talk about later in the way that, uh, you know, this relationship that Rudolph has with his, with his job. And it's, in some ways, my, my two honorable mentions are disquieting. They're scenes that are meant to be unsettling uh, rather than simply that we would accept the way things are in both films. And, and I, I, I was fascinated by that. The, the, it's an exclamation point on the film with, that we're going to talk about 
uh, later. And these are, again, honorable mentions. Like, I agree with you. This was a great year in film. Um, there was a lot of great stuff uh, up and down. So, so top movie moments are, I mean, they're, they're in some ways tough to pick, but, but let's, let's give it a try. What, what's your number three movie moment of 2023? Yeah. So, uh, I'm a sucker for a movie that throws down the gauntlet with an opening sequence. Um, there's, there's something about, a. uh, a film that is just so confident in its own craft that is going to sort of announce its own greatness with its opening sequence and then completely back it up with something that just uh, blows your socks off. Um, and that kind of moment is found with the opening sequence of Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. Um uh, like the the entire opening sequence is, you know, fantastic. It follows, you know, Spider-Gwen rather than Miles Morales to start with. And the way that the film picks kind of this, this watercolor impressionistic visual scheme for Gwen's prologue is just jaw-droppingly gorgeous. Like it's just gorgeous to look at best you know probably my favorite animation of any film that came out this year and this is a year that also saw a miyazaki movie come out so that's yeah. you know stiff competition there but it's just it's gorgeous to look at but the sequence that throws down the gauntlet so to speak is uh towards the end of this prologue spider gwen is drawn into a fight at the guggenheim with an alternate universe version of the vulture uh, and some alternate universe spider people ha uh, come to her rescue. And just everything about it is thrilling. Um, the, the way the music and the editing and imagery all harmonize to make something that's, that's uh, so propulsive and hilarious and, and exciting all at once. I mean, I, I have to give it up. I, it cannot be denied. It's a great, great sequence, and it's the sort of sequence that I would dearly love to see more of in comic book movies in general. Just how it's, it doesn't, it's, it just has everything you could possibly want out of a popcorn movie sequence. It's funny, thrilling, exciting, uh, deeply emotional, um, and it sets up all of the dominoes for the rest of the film. I mean, what more could you want? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it it is a staggering scene honestly i i remember seeing that in theaters and just being astounded at the level of visual detail and stylistic impressions across the board in that simple scene it is nothing short of remarkable and i it, it, it almost it's funny i remember when the first fi came, film came out thinking to myself this is a very impressive achievement in terms of the way that they tap into the comic book style and the way that they 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 film the thing but you're absolutely right like everything about this is just remarkable and the the film works it really works and that scene is just a perfect opening just phenomenal um that is a great pick for number three. I I am very impressed. 
I, I mean, we were talking about this before the, the episode aired, but there are occasions where I will just fire up Netflix just to watch the first 20 minutes of yeah. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, just because I can't get enough of that opening sequence. And that, I think, has to be the mark of a great movie moment that you just want to return to that moment over and over and over, regardless of whether you watch the movie in its entirety afterwards. Well, you know, with that in mind, I there are some I have some movie moments this year that honestly I did not expect to put in my top three. But one of them, one of them is actually uh from a film that shocked me with its emotion and its thematic resonance and it's just uh a strong character work and it's godzilla minus one i i have you seen it it is i i can't say that i'm a, a godzilla fan not because i don't like godzilla um, but just because like, I'm not the sort of person who's like there on opening day to see Godzilla. That said, I do really like the original Godzilla and I've heard wonderful things about this new one. I'm, I'm the same as you. I went with a friend of mine who is obsessed with Godzilla. We went a couple of weeks into it and I've seen other Godzilla films and this was like nothing I'd seen before because this is a very deep film about PTSD and about dealing with trauma and about trying to put the pieces back together. It's set immediately following the events of World War II in Japan. Um, Japan is recovering from the effects of the bomb and, and tells the story of a kamikaze pilot who did not fulfill his mission. And Godzilla, the beast, becomes this metaphor for his trauma and his PTSD. Um, yes, it has the Godzilla tropes. It has him stomp, stomping through a city, just laying waste to everything. But there is uh, there this scene in particular where they're on a ship. They're on a ship and Godzilla is approaching the ship and his head is just briefly out of the water. And I'm telling you, it is it is far more emotional than it should be. Maybe should be is the wrong, but I expected it to be is what I mean. It, it's the Godzilla becomes a metaphor for his feelings of loss. And he's constantly on the move. Um, and, and the film, to my understanding, has a budget of roughly $13 million in terms of special effects. And it looks phenomenal, like just the best special effects of the year, without question, for less than some actors got paid, you know, get paid on a, in a Hollywood set. It is a really genuine surprise. Um, and and the film itself might, might actually squeak into my top 10 films, but this moment really, really leaves a mark. I mean... I do feel like the, the best Godzilla movies aren't just about watching a giant lizard level a level a civilization, right? Like there's there's this resonance that that he has in in the best Godzilla movies that um goes beyond just what he literally is. So it sounds like this new one is of a piece with that tradition. It it really is. And you know, 
that's what is I, like, it's funny because I, I came out of the theater and I immediately turned to my friend and I said, I do not want Godzilla minus two. Like this is a this is a great film. I don't need it to become the Godzilla minus franchise because it works. And and the fact that they would land it and set it post World War Two has a much deeper resonance than than most of these other uh, Godzilla films that just take place in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties and what have you because it, they're grounding it in in genuine history and it becomes almost a self reflection um it's genuine surprise a genuine surprise for me uh, what's your number two well so you know we we've we've gone with the, the blockbusters for those first two picks i'm going to go to something much more human sized for for my number two um i really liked sofia coppola's movie priscilla um from uh close to the end of, of 2023. This is a movie that is focused on the story of the, the woman who married Elvis. She meets him in high school and is sort of swept off her feet by him. He takes her back to, uh, from where she lives, uh, stationed on a military base in Europe. He sweeps her off feet, takes her back to Graceland, marries her, and uh, they lead a life of sorts together. And I think Coppola is very good and very perceptive about how um, people, often women, uh, find themselves in, um, in social contexts and under social pressures that are stifling to them and that they have to kind of find a way towards some sort of meaning or self-actualization within the, within that context. Um, so this movie fits very neatly into that tradition for her filmography. But my favorite moment from the film is, you know, and it is very, it, it's a very sober film. Like there are so many shots of Priscilla while Elvis is kind of off attending to his empire elsewhere in the country and sort of hobnobbing with starlets and kind of being the king that we all have heard of and know about. Um, there are all these shots that Coppola give us of Priscilla back at Graceland in this big empty house all by herself, just sort of wandering from room to room aimlessly, not quite knowing what to do with herself. And the film is very clear-eyed about kind of the cost of marrying uh, into this, into sort of this dream life and sort of what's the cost of when dream butts up against reality. Very sober-minded, but the moment that I love the most from the film is actually an ecstatic moment um, where Priscilla and Elvis are still kind of flush in their in in the in the uh, fairy tale phase of their relationship, um, and we kind of see Priscilla morph from the high school girl whom Elvis grooms. I mean, there's no other word for it. He is much older than her, and she is much too young to be making these a decision to go live with him. Um, but um, the film is very honest and clear-eyed also about how that would be very exciting for somebody as young as this. And there's a montage where we see Priscilla kind of go from being that high school girl to being uh, Priscilla Presley and the the signature look that she cultivated, the, the, uh, the beehive hairdo, the eyeshadow. Um, all of that is set to a Dan Deacon song, which 
it was gratifying to me, gratifying to me personally, just because I love Dan Deacon, but the whole thing is just so ecstatic and really carries through the excitement of her uh, interstate at that time. And it climaxes with a fireworks show that is just, it, it's just a wonderful, wonderful and thrilling example of how music and montage can work together to bring you into an emotional state where even though you know how Priscilla Presley's life isn't going to be a bed of roses after this, you can understand what was attractive to her about it in the beginning. And I think that's Coppola being very clear-eyed um, about the totality of her character's life rather than just, you know, cherry-picking details from it. So, I don't know, I love that sequence. It's, it's again, very thrilling, like my previous one, but it's a much more human-sized kind of thrill. So, I like it quite a bit. Now, that was one that I did miss. Um, I'm looking forward to trying to check that one out because I do love uh, Sofia Coppola. I love her work. I always have. Um, there's always a humanity to her characters that that breaks through. And, and I was looking forward to this one because especially coming after last year's Elvis, which was, you know, so wild and, you know, over the top in so many ways to for Sofia Coppola to take a crack at this story and from Priscilla's perspective was really intriguing to me so I do want to check that one out yeah and it and I'm I'm glad you brought up the Baz Luhrmann Elvis because not being a huge Baz Luhrmann fan I was really gratified to see Sofia Coppola sort of like say, okay, wait a minute, I'm going to puncture this this grand fantasia that you've constructed uh because you know, this is going to be through the eyes of his wife who sort of didn't get to live the fantasy that he got to. Um, I know it's, it's, it's a wonderful film and I hope lots of people get a chance to see it. And, and actually, you know, in many ways it, it serves as a great alternate view of that story because she doesn't have much of a voice in the Boz Lerman film. It's really about him and Colonel Parker. So to he, to have the opportunity to see that story from another side, I think is, is, is phenomenal. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing that. So. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. I'm interested to know your thoughts once you do get around to it, but you've got a, you've got your own little, uh, 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 I don't know. I feel like your, your second pick is also kind of, of a kindred spirit maybe for, with Priscilla in some ways. You know, it might, it might be, um, I went the opposite way in terms of humanness, if you will. Um, I, I, I can't shake Barbie. Um, I, I'm not a Barbie <laughs> head. I, uh, as a child, I played with Barbies. My, my sister had Barbies. My friends who were girls had Barbies, but I absolutely adore Greta Gerwig's Barbie. I, I know it's not subtle and it is just, it is wild, but it's so very funny. And there is this one particular moment, which I truly think is one of the moments this year that got the most people talking in the best of ways, uh, America Ferreira uh, plays the owner of a Barbie and the film is in some ways trying to explain the Barbie human relationship based on this film is just too complicated to, to, to do so. But um, she's sitting there in Barbie world and she goes on about a two minute speech 
about the complexities of femininity in the modern era. And she says things like, you know, you have to be pretty, but not too pretty. You have to be smart, but not too, you have to be confident, but not too strong. And all of these contradictions that uh, modern women must, are trying to navigate in, in the current world. And I will honestly say, not only did I think it was a fantastic moment, a fantastic performance in that in that little in that speech. Um, it's also one of the moments that I honestly felt most people spoke to me about. If they spoke about something this year, a moment for them, it seemed to be about this speech in this film. And I really think it was something special and really sort of drives the point home. Uh, over the overall film, Gerwig did an absolutely remarkable job with a film that on paper did not seem like it was going to work, but does so beautifully. I mean, 2023, in some ways, was kind of the year of Barbie, wasn't it? Like everybody, it, it kind of took you back to the Halcyon days before the MCU when like the movie like everybody was talking about the same movie and it didn't involve superheroes. Like that, that was very refreshing. And you're right that it's Gerwig was kind of faced with an almost impossible task to make a decent movie about Barbie. I I'm going to have to confess that I wasn't as high on it as a lot of people were, but it was nice to kind of see just everybody sort of come together and just being interested in the movie. Uh, and and that was, it was nice. It was like a, a kind of a culture wide event that didn't revolve around action or punching or explosions. Like that was, that was just nice. And it does have like, it, it has its heart in the right place and it has lots of ideas on its mind. And man, just thank goodness that, you know, th- those those kinds of movies can still be the monster hits that Barbie was. You know, it, it absolutely was refreshing. I like that uh, the use of that term because it, it it just felt different. It just felt different. It was nice to have a cultural moment where we weren't worried about what, what supervillain and what timeline we were on. You know, it was just sort of like, here we are. This is a this is a film which I felt like really worked. Um, and I mean, I, I'm not even, I'm not even talking about like, I'm just Ken, which was the, uh, another major thing to come out of this was Ken's story, but no, I really appreciated this thing and it, and it certainly left its mark. So, um, it was something I, I had to mention now, but before we get to our number one, uh, before we get to our number one, Kevin, I think. We have some clips uh, from some of our other friends, Screenfish's other friends. Uh, tell us their favorite movie moment of the year. So let's go to them first. Hi, I'm Brianna from the Tarot Group. And my magical movie moment from 2023 is maybe a little unorthodox, but it's actually when I went to see Cocaine Bear in theaters, of all things. It... uh I wasn't really sure what to expect that from that movie. Obviously, Elizabeth Banks is the director, so you expect it to be funny, but there's just nothing like sitting in a movie theater, hearing people scream, and then hearing people laugh, and I just died laughing throughout the whole movie, and it was just a fun, amazing energy in that theater, and that's really my favorite thing about movies. I love watching them 
as a community with other people in the movie theater and just feeling the energy of everyone else around me, no matter what the movie is. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's my favorite. You should check it out if you haven't seen it. It's a, it's a wild ride. Hey there, Screenfish. Uh, Ali Lamarshedden here, Route 504 PR. You asked me for my favorite movie moment of 2023, and frankly, it was a pretty easy choice. Uh, my favorite movie moment came right at the end of 2023 with Zac Efron doing inverted sit-ups in The Iron Claw. It was a cinematic masterpiece, if I say so myself. No one has ever been so buff for a role. Uh, anyways, thanks for asking. Chris Utley here you, with my biggest moments in cinema in 2023. Number one is definitely the epic, epic monologue from Barbie. America Ferreira's performance in the words that were written said it all. And number two, I think would be Christopher Nolan getting us to spend three hours in a big old IMAX um, auditorium watching people talk with probably two minutes of bomb footage in Oppenheimer. That's what I got. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Julie Levac. Oh my goodness, I, I can't believe that it's 2024 already. But in terms of my favorite movie moments of 2023, I keep thinking back to this one moment, um, which is, is going to get a bit heavy, so I apologize in advance. But I saw the Mr. Dress Up documentary in September at TIFF. And obviously it was very nostalgic and it was absolutely incredible. But I saw this documentary on the one year anniversary of my mother's death. And there was a scene in the Mr. Dress Up documentary that was about how Ernie Coombs' wife died. And it was, she, you know, she died in a very tragic way. And I had no idea, you know, when this happened, I was still a kid and I didn't know. And I was very shocked to hear that this happened. But what really touched me was how Ernie came back and continued on with his his show. And I remember a clip of him going on the Fred Penner show. And if I'm not mistaken, it was the first time he had come back to the screen after his wife passed away. And it was so tragic and so touching. And it really kind of helped me think about my own grief and, you know, being there for my own children in the midst of that grief, as Ernie was there for all of us in the midst of his grief. So it was very, very um, monumental, I think, for me in that moment, you know, on that day specifically, seeing that, learning that, and really thinking deeply about how he handled it. So, so that's really, that's really it. I mean, it was such a big moment in film for me in 2023. Take care. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you are in the seats with once more. It's your boy, Dave Voigt, the host and producer and editor over at In the Seats, but also at In the Seats with uh, your one-stop shop for all the latest uh, movie news, entertainment reviews, and lovely conversations we have with a wide-ranging variety of entertainment industry professionals. I am obviously a uh, a friend of Screenfish and uh, happy to participate 
as we talk a little bit about movie moments of the past year. Uh, and you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change gears a little bit. I'm going to be honest with you. There isn't any sort of specific scene or movie or moment that stands out. But uh, the reality is I suffered some personal loss this year. Uh, I lost my mother back in November to cancer. And uh, obviously still going through all that. But it's kind of made me remember and appreciate how lucky I am uh, to be able to get to work in the arts, in the movie industry, and talk with a wide-ranging variety of people who who live their dreams. And I'm one of them. And I mean, that really is such an important thing as well, to, to find what works for you, find your dream, and live it. And I mean, I think if there was a movie moment for me in 2023, it's that the movies is my moment. And I love every single minute of it. And I have to thank you and all my listeners and readers and all the, all the readers and listeners for Screenfish as well for contributing to the conversation about cinema and cinema appreciation. Uh, I love you all. And uh, just uh, keep watching and keep working. And we will uh, certainly be talking more and more in 2024. Bye. Thank you, everyone. I really appreciate you sending in your clips. And uh, absolutely, those are great picks. I appreciate it. So here we are. Kevin, drumroll, please. What is your number one movie moment for 2023? Man, okay. So one of the things I loved about 2023 was there are so many kind of established masters of the filmmaking craft who came out with movies this year. You had Wes Anderson, Michael Mann, um, and last but certainly not least, Martin Scorsese. And all of them kind of, in some way or another, kind of made movies that felt like them in some way really honestly reckoning with something very personal to themselves and maybe in some ways even reflecting on kind of what their place as cinematic storytellers is. And my number one movie moment of the year that I just can't stop thinking about is kind of the, the closing the, the epilogue, I guess, to Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese's movie about the uh, the um, the murders that targeted the Osage people in the early 1900s, um, where uh, a bunch of kind of a cobble of white men essentially got together with a scheme to marry into the Osage nation, kill off the women who had rights to this oil rich land. And then take that, take those assets and that money for themselves. It's a you know a horrifying story, very sobering, um, uh, even more sobering for the fact that for a lot of people, this is going to be the first time they had ever even heard that that, that sort of thing happened. Um, so it's it's a story that needed to be told. Scorsese tells it very well. In the epilogue, though, he kind of makes the interesting choice to give that kind of standard, you know based on a true story ending where, you know, what what eventually happened to all these characters, you know, so-and-so ended up here, so-and-so ended up here, so-and-so died, um, like that. We're all used to seeing that at the end of a movie that's based on a historical, true-to-life story. Um, Scorsese kind of frames it as this rinky-dink, you know, 1930s, 1940s radio serial drama where, you know, the the 
where are they now little blurbs for each of the characters that we've seen is read off by actors and they're sort of hamming it up for the for the microphone and um it, it seems it feels like scorsese is very pointedly um calling out how these sorts of atrocities and injustices are often kind of packaged very neatly for a very certain kind of audience in in our case of a white audience and kind of come packaged in a way that we can consume and feel you know kind of good about in the sense that you know we we are properly horrified by it and that makes us kind of good people and now that the 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 injustice has been told and set right we can all sort of move on with our lives um scorsese's framing of that kind of gives the lie to that sentiment and says no this was a horrible thing that happened and he puts a button on it by at the very end he uh scorsese himself comes out on camera um and he gets he reads out the um the blurb about uh lily gladstone's character molly uh who is one of the most she she faces so much over the course of the movie and and loses so much and Scorsese himself reads it out and he reads it with such grief on his face um, and close and ends it just by kind of looking into the camera, just completely mournful um, as if to say, I know that I'm a white, white guy telling an indigenous story. I know that this is just a movie um, and that nothing can really undo the injustices that were perpetrated against these people. But it's, it's the only thing I can do as a cinematic artist. And then he closes it with a final shot of the Osage themselves. And I think it's it's a beautiful ending. And I think it puts the emphasis where it needs to be put. It's not just a white filmmaker appropriating another story of a victimized group kind of to burnish his own his own street cred. It's somebody who's doing the only thing he knows how to do in response to a historical atrocity. Um, does it make amends? That's maybe not for a white person to say, but it is very heartfelt, sincere, and respectful. And I'm so thankful that he made it. And for a filmmaker who has made as many great movies as Scorsese has, this stands among some of his greatest. I really like this film. And it's just the perfect ending to it. Uh, I, I agree with you 100. percent And I'll I will say that there was no film I dreaded uh, more this year than Killers of the Flower Moon because I uh, not that I, you know, Scorsese, incredible, one of the one of the greatest. Um, but I was deathly afraid of how of the tone he was going to take with this particular film, because even unintentionally, I was worried about it coming across as appropriation. And uh, and he doesn't I don't think he does that, or at least directly. Um, he works very hard to not. And and I think that so much of the film becomes a an American tragedy of this, the, the stealing of the American soul um, and, and the damage that has been done. Like in many ways, I don't think this was a film of like, Oh no, these poor people. It was like, Oh, what have we done? Mm -hmm. 
and and I think that that made the film work. Like, there, there's an incredible film that looks at residential skill, schools. It's a Canadian film called Bones of Crows, and it's just like uh, I'm going to use the word dangerous, and I don't, and I mean dangerous in a good way. Like, it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal film. Uh, indigenous filmmakers, indigenous cast, just incredible storytelling. And with this particular one, I was actually nervous that it would try to be that. Um, but you're absolutely right. The the note that the film hits uh, in its finale um, genuinely seems to move away from that. It's not trying to, he's not trying to own anybody's story. He's trying to, I, I, amends cannot be made because of because of a film but a genuine sense of owning owning the darkness within uh which i felt worked uh and worked very well i mean i think that's why it feels like it it's such a fitting late period film for him you know he's spent an entire career chronicling you know the various dark impulses that people can get up to whether they're gangsters boxers um even you know like priests like all of these all these scorsese is better than anyone else at sort of being very unsparing about the darkness that can coexist with a conscience in the human heart and the fact that he's so he turns that unsparing sensibility on um on the characters in killers of the flower moon like he doesn't give his white audience anywhere to hide he's like there can be no justice when you are living in a completely unjust system. And it's a tough sit. He doesn't kind of give us a good guy that we can root for necessarily who's going to come. Like there's no, there's no John Wayne character who comes in and puts everything right. And that I think is very disciplined of him to recognize and to put up on screen. Um, yeah, a, a tough sit, but a very important film and one that I that I just keep thinking about all the time. So I'll I'll I'll, I'll be quiet about it now because I could go on and on, but it, it's it's a great great film. It's a great film. It really is. And and I will say, I mean, my my number one pick as well is very different type of film, um, and it comes from Alexander Payne's The Holdovers which uh, is truly one of my favorite films of the year. It is just a, a remarkable story. It tells the story of a, of a, uh, of a teacher, uh, a, a grumpy curmudgeon, if you will, of a teacher in an all boys school played by Paul Giamatti. And the Christmas hall with, with the Christmas holidays approaching, um, the, the kids are going home and they're teenagers. They're going home except for a select few whose parents have decided that they're going to stay there for the holidays. And, and the teacher is left in charge uh, of these, these young men uh, in a play. And, and eventually it goes down to just one student, him and one student and the cook trying to get through the holidays together. Um, it, I really find it some of the best performances and character work of the year. Paul Giamatti is just remarkable, as is uh, Divine. Um, just incredible, incredible performances from them. Um, and, and what we see is we see these broken pieces trying to fumble their way 
through life together. Um, and actually, it's a Christmas movie that doesn't really know what to do with Christmas, and I find that fascinating as well. Um, but there is a scene in the film's finale, uh, without spoiling the the ending per se. We I did podcast on it before, but uh, there's a scene in the film's finale when uh, the Paul Giamatti is called into the office for a meeting, and while he is in the meeting. Uh, young Angus, who's probably about 17 years old, and uh, Divine, who is the, the cook, I forget her character's name, are sitting outside, and they simply take each other's hand. No words are spoken. Uh, it, it's, it's a very motherly moment. It's a very, we're going to get through this together moment, and it so symbolizes the rest of the film. Um, it is such a no words are spoken and yet so much is said and it's just an incredible moment that i just honestly i cannot stop thinking about this this just brief one one hand taking another as they await the fate of what's about to come on the outs when when this meeting is over uh it's just just a remarkable moment that's my number one the holdovers was such a a nice I don't want to say surprise necessarily. Like I'm not surprised it was good, but it was just so it was again, one of these movies where it was just very gratifying to, to, to watch it and to see the warm reception that it got from audiences in general, just because it is kind of in some ways it almost feels like a throwback to a certain kind of um, smaller adult movie from, I don't know, like the seventies or, or maybe even early eighties where it was just sort of, about a, a group of people um it's uh not sentimental but it's not afraid of sentiment if that distinction makes sense um yeah i don't know i i i like i had a good time with this film also so i'm glad to see that that you liked it as well it, it surprise is not again i want to agree with you saying the word surprise because i wasn't surprised that it was good i was surprised at how i connected with it like it was it's just one of these things that you sit with and just the moments sort of land and everything feels personable and natural. Like there aren't, if I remember correctly, I don't think there's any wild set pieces. It's just people doing things. Um, and, and the conversations that take place and the little truths that are revealed and the little, you know, there's, there's, there aren't a lot. I mean, I guess there are some revealing moments, but it's not a, a film that tries to grab you. It's just a it's a film that wants to sit with you. Mm. And uh, and that 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 one moment really sort of is the climax of the film um, for me. So I, I, I got to ask just as a sidebar, have you seen uh, this is another film that came out last year, Vin Vendor's uh, Perfect Days? I have not. I have heard good things. It was a tip. Hearing hearing you talk about what you liked about the holdovers makes me think you'll really dig Perfect Days because it's a similar one where it's just kind of it's a movie that that sits with you rather than trying to grab you and uh, it's just quiet and lovely and humanistic and it just I don't know I think you'd really like it so just quick recommendation there if you have the the screener lying around I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I'll take a look. I've heard good things about the film, but I have not seen it yet. So I will, I will make sure I check that out. That's a good one. 
Well, I mean, Kevin, I appreciate this. This is great. I love doing this with you. And actually, um, I'm I'm going to take a break here. I, we were supposed to, or we are going to talk about zone of interest, but I actually think that just with with this great conversation, I'm going to split us here and then come back. So stay. Make sure that you listen to our next episode, which will be covering zone of interest, and and we'll just focus in right now on the on our movie moments and. Um, you know what, since we're, since we're taking a break, a quick break, Kevin, uh, why don't you promote your wares before you go? How can people connect with you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean, if, if listen, if your listeners kind of remember previous times when I've been on the show, uh, I used to be co-host of the seeing and believing podcast. Um, this past year, uh, we, we drew the curtain on the podcast. We hit episode 400. And decide, you know, that's a nice round number. We're going to call it there. So the podcast is no longer active. Although if you go to ChristandPopCulture.com, you can still find our archive there or on, you know, Apple Podcasts, any sort of podcast catcher. Uh, but Seeing and Believing has not gone away. Uh, my uh, colleague, Sarah Welch Larson, and I uh, pivoted to print. So now we have a, a newsletter that you can sign up for where every week, um, we we send out written reviews of films that we've recently seen. So if you go to seeingandbelieving.substack.com, you can sign up for for free there, or you can pledge you know pledge a little something uh, if you feel so inclined. But it's free to subscribe, and you get a weekly newsletter every week from Sarah, me, or both of us, uh, just writing about you know writing movies about. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> writing reviews about the movies that we've that we've we've seen recently so um seeing and believing dot com is is where you can find me there i appreciate that and certainly i i've subscribed to substack i don't know what you call it on substack but i have too and i appreciate everything that you guys put out uh and for you at home a reminder you can find us wherever podcasts are available you can like and subscribe to us on youtube uh smash that subscribe button um, we are on Instagram and, and you can find us wherever podcasts are available. And if you go to this podcast page on screenfish.net, you can download fishing for more, which are small group questions, help you get the conversation started where you are. Um, and we will be right back with our next episode, which will focus in on zone of interest. So Kevin, once again, thank you. And for you at home, we started the conversation. This was screenfish.